0: If you liked hearing Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson provide secrets on negotiating for total compensation, dealing with microaggressions, or simply being able to just be your authentic self, then welcome to season two of Secrets. Are you one of the only on your job? Do you wonder why the same type of people continue getting promotions? Have you dreamed of getting to the top but don't know how? Welcome to Secrets Season 2, a podcast devoted to showcasing dilemmas faced by underrepresented employees in their quest to climb the career ladder. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have experienced the corporate grind for more than 20 years. Now they want to share their adventures, pitfalls, and C-suite secrets that they've learned along the way. So let's fill up those cups and get started. Here are your hosts.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Hope you had a great Easter weekend. Ricky, how you doing, my friend? Keith, Keith, Keith. Man, oh, man.
2: Our messages on LinkedIn, Facebook, and email, man, they just been blowing up about the ladies that we've had on the show lately. I mean, man, we've had... Dorit Cyprus, Yeah,
1: and that stuff she was talking about by transformational whiteness. We got so many comments
2: about that. Absolutely. We've had Teresa Robinson. Ooh, wait, <laughs> That's sister, <laughs> all I'm going to say. Ooh, we The sister queen, right? Yes. We had Elaine Brown. And she brought it. She brought the heat. She did not disappoint. Not at all. Not she at did all. not disappoint. But the crazy part about this is we are not even done yet. I mean, we have another guest that we are going to speak with today that will have you saying "Mm, mm, mm, them brothers from secrets made my day. Yes, we did. So, KP, tell our listeners who we have on the show today. So,
1: Ricky, today we are joined by Amber Cabral Mm. and Amber is an inclusive and diversity consultant and CEO at Cabral Co. She was formerly a diversity strategist at Walmart. And Amber founded Cabalco to guide organizations of multiple sizes and scope, seeking to create and execute strategies that achieve sustainable and inclusive behavior shifts in the workplace. That's what we've been talking about, right? Absolutely. So she's passionate about nurturing the next generation of decision makers. She serves on the board of multiple nonprofit organizations, including Brown Girls Do that are committed to promoting diverse representation in the arts and workplaces and communities, as well as empowering women and girls globally. And she just completed her first book that we've read, yep. I've actually read it twice, <laughs> called Allies and Advocates, which was published in 2020. This is a must read, Ricky.
2: I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a real book. <laughs> you know, this is it not is. cliff notes. This is not like some some small article. This is a real book audience, all I can say is what an amazing conversation that we had with Amber. I cannot wait for
1: you all to hear this. Yeah, this is going to be fire again. One more, one more again. (laughs) That's what we do. That's right. That's what we do. And in this episode, Ricky and I will speak about Uh, a few examples of how corporate America has aligned on the consistency and timeliness of its message when it comes to dealing with the race. Mm -hmm. And we will share excerpts from our interview with Amber, where she speaks about performative allyship, skin color, white privilege, and white fragility. (laughs) And we'll close out with Amber sharing secrets from her book regarding the six steps to being a better ally and a very timely secret for black women trying to find their voice,
2: yeah, so I'm thinking about this right now, and number one, that conversation with with Amber was just amazing. I mean, it was I mean, we're talking about stuff that was recorded once we stopped recording, that's when it really got good, oh too. yeah, we had a good time, so we just have to just you have to trust us. It, we was talking. We was, yes. That's why we said breaking bread. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. All. But it's crazy when you think about the various responses from corporate America that we have experienced over the last few years. I mean, yeah. this is kind of like clockwork. Now, I know we talked about this in the earlier episodes. Yep. But again, we're not making this stuff up. Not I mean, We're all. just talking to you about what we see. So, again, we talked to you about the predictable instincts in episode one. For this season, season mm-hmm, two. Mm-hmm. But let's do just a quick recap. Yeah. Okay. Not to minimize or make light of any of the events that have caused corporate America to actually react. Okay. Or to give the illusion that they're reacting.
1: Yeah, right. for sure. But
2: remember how it was like the flavor of the month for corporations and leaders to make statements about how reprehensible it was to take advantage of women with respect to the Me Too movement. Oh yeah, I remember. Okay. Well, if you remember, do you remember any of this though? So many statements were made, but were there sustainable changes that impacted the boardroom or gender representation
1: in the C-suite? Let me think about that.
2: (laughs) Well, don't think too long, okay? Because right. I don't want you to trip over uh, a zero response, right? right. <laughs> but but actually, as we think about the sustainable change, I mean, we can just look around and kind of see
1: that we're still in the same boat. You're still in the same boat, and mm-hmm. that was just that was four years ago with me too. Yeah, and all that stuff happened, right? And then then all of last year, and a short time prior to then. The performative thing to do is to make a statement regarding violence against black people with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? People put up black squares on social media. You got the checks, the reparations, if you will, going Mm -hmm. to black businesses and charities all of a sudden. New commercials with all these black folk on them, slogans on the basketball courts. Everybody hiring a chief diversity officer all of a sudden. Again, this is all appreciated on some level. But we here at Seekers like to talk about the long-term sustainable investment and change that's necessary to move the bar, right? And if these are one-off acts, then it's just performative at best. And it's actually harmful, you know, at its core if you're just doing this one-off shit.
2: I mean, it's like placating, you know, things. Right. Yeah, 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 I hear you. I, exactly. hear you. I hear you. But you don't really have any real – And just be patient. Right. Just be patient. Yeah, just we be patient. heard you. It's important to us. Right. <laughs> just exactly. Be patient. Didn't you right? see what I did? Right. Now, unfortunately, we are here again as we now begin speaking on our outrage about the violence against the Asian community. Whew. Now, we know that the last administration, and not to pick on anybody, right. but I'm just, we're just talking yeah. about recent events, right? right? The last administration did absolutely no favors to to our Asian community. not at all. As we heard countless times about the origins of the coronavirus, referring to it with a derogatory phrase as the Kung flu and the China virus. So we are at a critical point, in my opinion, where corporate America can stop the theatrics. Yes. Okay. Yep. And do some self-reflection while also putting in some real work to create sustainable change. No doubt. So with no further delay, let's get into this discussion that Keith and I had with Amber. So, man, just buckle
1: up, buckle up. Amber, I know in your book you talk about performative allyship versus real allyship. Mm-hmm. And I know in your 20 years of doing this work, you've seen both. So could yeah, you describe for our listeners kind of what performative allyship looks like versus real allyship?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so performative allyship is it feels real good, y'all. <laughs> so you, you you really think you are really in there and
1: you get a book right. deal. You get a you book deal.
3: deal. That's right. Listen, okay. You feel like it's going right, right? It, it's not always that. And so performative allyship is essentially when you know you insert yourself into a space and believe that you are being helpful, but what you're really doing is seeking a bit of recognition or some kind of reward or some kind of an acknowledgement or attention. There's some kind of incentive for you to do it, right? And so one of the common references is like, you know, when it was Blackout Tuesday last year, all of Instagram had all these Black squares. Folks didn't even know what they was putting a Black square up for, right? Everybody was <laughs> feeling the George Floyd burn and they were like, oh my gosh, we got to put a Black square up, you know, in solidarity, right? That feels like, allyship because you're standing with a group of folks, but like what impact are you truly making, right? When you want to be an actual ally, there has to be an impact. There was an impact to me writing a book, right? There's an impact that's going to touch people. It's going to shift perspectives. It's going to leave a marker out in the world. Are there some incentives to that? Yes, but I can also identify the impacts that have nothing to do with me. And so that's the thing that you have to be aware of. And here's the thing, performative allyship happens all the time accidentally. So here's an example. I'm in a meeting, me and perhaps the two of you. And let's say we have a leader in the room, right? Because I won't pick on y'all yet. I may be a little later in the podcast. But <laughs> it's okay. We have, an, <laughs> we have a leader in the room. And that leader in the room says, Amber, you know, I know this isn't what, what I asked you to cover. What I actually requested was this. And I think you need to do this over, right? Now, the two of you are in the room and you go, mm, that's not what was said. I, I don't think that that's right, right? And so then we leave the meeting. And what you do is you come around after. And you say, hey, Amber, that wasn't right. Our leader shouldn't have really screamed on you about that because like that wasn't what was said. Right. In that moment, you feel like you're doing something good. You're going to your colleague and you're saying like, listen, I'm here for you. And they were not right. And I want you to know that I know it. I don't need Mm -hmm. you to do that. I need you to do it in the room right? I need you to say in the room, excuse me, my apologies for interrupting here, but I was actually in the meeting that you're talking about. And and that wasn't what was stated. What we walked away understanding was blah, blah, blah. That is allyship. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. And again, that goes back to that inclusion thing. We think it's always going to feel good, but it don't feel good sometimes to have to step in and say things to challenge. But that's what allyship really is about. The performing part of it is you feel good because you came and told me, Hey, that's right. not right. I still feel bad because my boss think I broke it, okay? But right. that's where, you know, you gotta be real clear about, you know, what is the impact of this behavior? Am I doing it for me? Or am I doing it because I'm gonna make a shift and an impact in the experience right now?
2: Uh, I mean, Key, and I think that last year, just in itself, we saw a lot of performances. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. And we're still seeing, you know, I'm performances. It. Whether it's people making like a good post and it's making themselves
3: Well, let's I mean, you know, let's let's use uh, some real ones, right? Like we can use some from this week. Cuomo. We're gonna talk about Governor Cuomo. Governor Cuomo was on television every day at the beginning of the pandemic. People were tuned into his report. Like, you know, he was speaking to the nation. It was, I mean, very, very just incredibly wonderful political performance, right? And people were like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of leadership that I am craving. And you thought that that was right. And now we're getting all these stories out about the things he was not doing, about yeah, the labor yeah. that was not happening, mm-hmm. about the impact that he wasn't genuinely doing, but he looked like it, right? That's performative for allyship. And that's dangerous. Look at all the people that have died. Look at all the risks that was put into place because you put on a show and we were paying attention. We were sold and we were brought in. And now we're finding out, oh, but it was just a show. That's yep. where the danger is. It's really, re- I tell people, and I, I believe I wrote this in the book, it's dangerous to do this. And so you shouldn't do it. You have to be really purposeful about the way you're showing up as an ally so that you're making a meaningful impact instead of just leading people to believe you're doing that.
1: Yeah, and oh, one that gets me, Amber, because I'm a finance guy, is like all of a sudden, all this money started dropping out the sky. Out the sky.
3: <laughs> out the <laughs> sky. I'm like, what is this all about? And thank you, because I appreciate you know some of the ways that, that has benefited black communities, including brown girls do ballet. We are grateful for your donation dollars. But like that just tells me, like, oh my gosh, like how long were you telling me that you couldn't? And in reality, when you want to, you can, right? And yeah, so like, yeah. stop putting on the show for me that you don't have the ability, right? Instead, mm-hmm. tell me, I don't understand why I should. And then give me the opportunity to give you the reason that you should, but don't tell me that you can't. And then the minute you feel a pinch of guilt or the minute you feel, you know, like it's gonna give you a bit of incentive and reward, suddenly the faucet comes on.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that that's absolutely true. And I think that having people out there willing to talk about this truth is helpful but i think the bigger part of this though is as a leader of people in in corporate america we got to stop the performance yeah we actually have to do the work and and hold ourselves accountable there correct so you also speak about perceived assumptions that people have about you even being with short hair or maybe even with your complexion can you touch on that for us if you can, from an identity and privilege standpoint.
3: Yes. Yeah, so this is like, honestly, talking about myself in the book was one of the most uncomfortable things to do, but I thought it was really important because just to give you a snapshot here, you know, as the book was being written, they were sending me covers, right? Like this in is what- 13 in, thir- thir- yeah,
2: 13, in 13 days. In 13 days.
3: In this 13 days, right? Like, <laughs> you're like hey, this is going to be the cover. You know, what do you think? You know? And I, of course, I get to sign off and approve everything. You know, I wasn't forced into anything. I want to make that very clear. But like when I got the book cover that I have, that's on, that's on the book now, I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going on the cover. Like make it a book that is a business book. It is for business people. Like don't, this is not an autobiography. Do not put me on there. And like, they were like, but wait, you know, this topic and like, you know, you're a Black woman and we really want to make sure that people know that it isn't just like a white woman. Your name's Amber. I'm like, oh, those are valid points, <laughs> you know, <'cause> Amber. <laughs> Amber is, you know, there are some black Ambers, but yes. traditionally a white girl's name. And so I struggled with it. And, you know, this was my opportunity to show up as an ally as well. And so I wanted to be very purposeful. Once the decision was made, okay, it makes sense for me to be on the cover of the book. And I had to unpack what my reservations were. And one of them is I am a very fair black woman. I am light-skinned. Okay. I am the girl that they like, oh, that light-skinned girl. Like that's me. All right. Do
2: did they say skinned or did they put another ED on there?
3: It. Yeah. I love it. Yes. Light-skinned. Okay. Yeah. That's me. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm very, very, very fair, you know? And so, as a result of that, there's a lot of privilege that happens. People, I I can be racially ambiguous when I choose to. I've got this nice little natural hair going on right now, but my last name is Cabral. People assume that I'm Hispanic or Latina, okay? And so it opens doors for me, right? People expect that I'm going to fit into some places. I'm well-represented in magazines. like. And so I had a lot of reservation about being on a book about allyship with this face. It was really something I had to unpack because I know what the assumptions are. And this is just kind of just, you know, and I talk about this in the book, like when you feel guilty, cause that's what it was. I felt guilty about my privilege, right? light skin privilege. I can't do nothing about it, but I got it right. Mm-hmm. I felt guilty about that. And I was like, no, 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 don't, don't put me on the book cover. And what I had to come to the realization of is that what was really important is that I was willing to do the work with my privilege. Yes put me on the book cover. The reason you should put me on the book cover is because I might look light skin, I might have light skin, but I am also a black woman. I'm going to be purposeful in making sure that there is visibility to the other black women that help make this happen. It's a black woman who took that photo, all right? And so there was a black woman who was my editor when my first round of edits went through. And I made sure to be purposeful, like I need a black woman that does not look like me. Because my experience and her experience are not going to be the same. And so like there are some privileges that come with having light skin and there's some guilt that is associated with that. But I also tell people when you feel guilt about your privilege, I mean, you got some work to do. That mean there's an opportunity for you to extend that privilege in some way. And so while I am on this book cover, while I am a light-skinned Black woman, what this is messaging is, hey, a Black woman can. And by the way, there is an opportunity for a Black woman who doesn't look like me to also be on a book cover with a major publisher. That's what this should be telling you. And so it's it's being purposeful and deliberate about the way your privilege shows up. Now, are people going to look at that sometime and be like, they just put her on there because she light-skinned? Of course. <laughs> Of course. And guess what? That might be true. Right. But the reality of the situation is that I am indeed a black woman. And my responsibility is to put the pressure and the opportunity out there to create the space for black women that don't have light skin. Right. That's what my privilege is supposed to do. Open doors, create opportunity, build connections, make requests, because I'm going to get to get in the room before somebody who isn't my complexion will. And so since I'm there. Let me use my privilege then. Y'all hook me up. Let me see who I can hook up to get get Mm -hmm. in the door. And so it's that it's really taking a moment to take stock of the moments where you realize like I'm privileged and not shrink and turn it off and hide it because I'm never going to get out of this skin. Right. I live in it, but I can use it to create access and opportunity for those who may not have had the opportunity, much like my publisher did for me
1: hmm yeah, Girl, no, that's great, that's great. Hey,
2: all I want to do is just pause for a minute because I really want, like, our listeners to understand, like, Amber, you putting in work, and, like, your the attitude that you have is the village mentality, right? We're yeah. saying, hey, I'm getting on, I'm trying to help other people get on, so why are we spending all of this time talking about stuff that doesn't matter? Yeah. Let's use this energy to be able to kind of just... yeah. Impact change. So we appreciate you for that. I don't think the yeah. book cover, at all, from my point of view, does any of that. That other stuff, but I do know. That <laughs> yeah. That I, but I do know. But it I do know. People can be. They take it into a totally different direction.
3: Yeah. Totally different yeah. Path. And I and and here's the thing. I'm open to that feedback. I am not a dark complexioned black woman. I'm not a dark complexion woman. Period. Mm-hmm. And so there is. Some stigma, some experience that I cannot personally relate to, that I have a responsibility to hear, to be an ally for, to figure out how I can use the privilege I have to ease and eliminate the experience that people that don't look like me have. And and that's the work I think I'm asking people to do in the book.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And what's interesting for me is that that word privilege is like a trigger for some of our white colleagues. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious as to how do you how do you deal with that when you're working with these various clients and just help them get in tune with the fact that we all have privilege in some way. And so it's up to us to use it in a positive way.
3: I talk about privilege a lot. <laughs> so I work with a lot of I mean, you know, I know I said well-recognized, big brands. I'm sure a lot of y'all was like, okay, white brands, right? So there's a lot of white corporations. And I do partner with a lot of of white leaders. You know, I I did a podcast with the CEO of Vans, you know, white man, right? And we talked about Mm -hmm. a lot of the discussion we're having here. And so it is a thing that has to come up. It is a required part of conversation for me because you can't be effective until you can look at you and say, oh, I got it easy. You don't know how you can help me until you realize that you have an ease that's different than mine. And so I try to encourage people to understand that to your point, everyone has some kind of privilege. It might be the privilege you have that, you know, you can see with both your two eyes without any complication. The privilege might be that you speak the dominant language that people are speaking in the room. It might be that you can use your two legs. You don't have to have crutches or a wheelchair or anything like that. You may not be neurodivergent, right? You may have a normal experience in some way. Does that mean that you didn't grow up in poverty? No. Does that mean that you perhaps have not had a hard time? No, does that not mean that you could perhaps be living with crushing debt? Absolutely not. Life can still be very hard for you, but you still have privilege. I have light skin privilege, right? So we have to recognize that we all have some version of that. And so I work to try to make sure people understand, like, this isn't a diminishment of whatever struggles you have. This Mm -hmm. is indeed an opportunity for you to say, eliminate some struggles somebody else has. And so I try to position it that way so that the word isn't so much an attack. You know, you're just privileged. Yes, I am. Please help me see what I'm missing as a result of my privilege. That's the response that we should have instead. Amber,
2: in uh, recent conversations, and, and, and let me not even skip by that. You were dropping straight science, you know, and we're loving it. Like, this is like, we're over here talking to our homegirl right now, you know, and this is like, we're loving it, right? Because we could talk to you forever. But in like, in recent conversations that we've been having within the DEI space, we've been having like an ongoing discussion about white fragility, okay? (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on the concept of white fragility? Okay. <laughs> you, can take a sip. you can take a sip. You can take a sip. before you answer this one. You can yeah, take- I, think, I think I'm gonna
3: take you up on that. Because what? Ooh. Okay, I gotta take, my oh, man, take my glasses off. Take the glasses off too.
2: Okay. Yeah. I told y'all. Look, Amber, give,
3: just give it to me straight. That's
1: right.
3: When you are white,
1: mm-hmm.
3: if you are white and male, even more so in corporate America if you are white and female, even more so in everyday life. You fragile, honey, you fragile, you fragile. You, can, you, you, don't, you don't want tough feedback. Anything that doesn't open the doors and the gates for you feels like oppression. It, you're fragile, you're fragile. You're so steeped in your privilege that the slightest rub can feel like an affront. Now, that said, many of us are fragile. All right. So we have white fragility. And the reason we talk about white fragility is because it is so common. (laughs) All right. It's so it's rampant. White people are largely comfortable. I can't tell you how many times I have conversations in corporations where they're like, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, make these conversations comfortable for people. Who Who told you that you were entitled to comfort? Uh Why do you think that? I'm uncomfortable why shouldn't you also be uncomfortable to fix it, right? Like we have this addiction to comfort, right? We, we will do anything to have it, but we simultaneously understand that you can't even get to growth unless you're willing to get uncomfortable, right? But we will fight for that comfort. And because there are so many white people in the United States particularly, right? And, and, and in Europe, but, you know, because there are so many white people, comfort is, it has become almost synonymous with a right. So the minute you're uncomfortable, there's all these Mm -hmm. antics and behaviors and temperaments that happen. That is the fragility. All right. Now, does everybody perform that way? Absolutely not. But I want to also make it clear, like we have two words working here. We have white and then we have fragility. Let's talk a little bit about fragility, because sometimes men are fragile.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) All right.
3: Sometimes men are fragile. Don't matter what kind, men can can be fragile. Okay, and so I want to be clear that like that's because you're rooted in your privilege and you're like, wait, this I am entitled to this as a man. I should have and you are indignant about it. That's you being fragile. All right. There are times when people who are able bodied are fragile. And so like the fragility can exist in a myriad of levels. Right. And it's it's this sense of entitlement. I expect when I turn my water on that it's going to come out at the temperature I set. When I turn the switch, that's it. The lights will come on when I hit the button. The minute there's a problem because there's a snowstorm in Texas that is taking everything down. I am fragile. What is happening here? I don't understand. That's fragility. Mm -hmm. Is your reaction to what you did not expect being indignant? How dare you? What made you think that this could happen? And the reason we talk about white fragility is because we are moving into a time period, another, because this has happened before, right? But we're moving into a time period where we're having conversations about the way white identity is oppressive to other people. And it's difficult to get the idea that just by existing in this complexion that I am in some way oppressing anybody, I'm just living. My life is just like this, right? But your life is like this as a result of. And so like, we don't talk about white fragility specifically but we talk about everything that I just said to you. And, you know, and and I'm purposeful about the language because one of the reasons I can talk about privilege is because we can get really keen on that definition and realize this is not a bad word. Fragile is a little harder. All right. Fragile, it's a little hard to talk about without people kind of getting hung up on. Fragile things break. All right. And so when someone hears a message that suggests to them that they will break, it's very hard for them to get the lesson. And so I don't use that as a teaching mechanism. I studied adult learning. I'm very thoughtful about the word choice I use for that reason. But in reality, that's exactly what it is. And it, and it's rampant. All right. And it's creating a lot of the reasons why the conversations that we're trying to have in workplaces and trying to have publicly, and even in our news media that are becoming important discussions, finally making their way into some impactful legislation even, right? Like the reason that that's happening is because there has been so much fragility, right, around it and and, and with it happening, you're seeing more of that occur. No, this can't happen. This is not the way it goes. Well, Well, who defined that way? How do we know it's right? And because you're uncomfortable, does that mean it's wrong? Cause we know that growth comes from discomfort. So why can't you join me in the discomfort so we can grow, right? So it's, I don't usually talk about, that was a great question. Cause I, I don't, I usually touch on the fragile,
1: with <laughs> yeah. the people
2: the
3: Like they're not really ready to talk about being fragile.
1: We told y'all Amber is the truth. Mm, mm, mm. She's now I knew good, good. And as I reflect on that conversation, I went back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, right? You know, when you think about the impact we're almost numb to our expectations for corporate America. When it comes to being a catalyst for change and true allyship, we might get a statement, a social media post, or maybe even a token gesture of empathy. But again, that can all be harmful to us when it's just this tokenism and this performative acts as underrepresented employees at the end of the day.
2: I mean, look, Keith, I mean, the moral to the story to me, like, honestly, is look, corporate America, we see you. OK, we see what you're we doing. You. you know, I'm not falling for the okie doke. Right? Got my side eye. The theatrics that predictably happen over and over again. They just need to stop. Yes. Okay. They do. We need to hold our corporate leaders to account. Hold them accountable.
1: Yes. No doubt about it. And so to bring this point home, as we always do, we bring you these receipts, right? We just got a couple for you today. We just go keep it, keep it tight. You know, our receipts today will point out why allyship and more is still needed for underrepresented employees. And look, Keith. We're not making this stuff up. Not like, like
2: it up. I, like I know y'all get laughing and and key in with me and Keith over here as we're doing this stuff, but we spend a lot of time trying to come up with some relevancy, you know, for the topics that we're speaking about, and
1: it's not that hard. It's not that hard. <laughs> it's not that hard. So, Ricky, I just had to point this one out to you because I just saw this article recently. And it pointed out that in the history of America, there's only been 20 black executives who have made it to the chairman or CEO position of a Fortune 500 company. Wow. There are currently four CEOs with two sisters, right? Two or more sisters. Rosalind Brewer, she just took over as CEO of Walgreens Boots Alliance in March. And then we got Sunda Brown Duckett, who will take the reins of TIAA uh, craft in May. And she's actually taking over for another brother, <laughs> Roger Ferguson. So, mm-hmm. the numbers ain't going to change at the end of the day. We're still going to have four. So, think about that. 20 black CEOs in the history of corporate America. Oh, my, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it's like,
2: I know we celebrate when when something good happens, Right. But think about how many times it didn't happen. Right. And it's not happening. And
1: how many, see this Fortune 500, and 500. how many times has he changed over? Yeah. And how many, how many hundreds of years we didn't have corporations? So we're not just talking about 480. We're talking about
2: way more That's opportunities. Right. The first than one was that. in the 70s. <laughs> right. So check this out. Receipt number two. Now, we talked about this receipt in our season one episode on white allyship, but I wanted to bring it back. Each year, the National Urban League puts out a report called The State of Black America. The Equality Index summarizes how well black people are doing compared to whites in the areas of economics, health, education, social justice, and civic engagement. And they represent that by a pie. Mm -hmm. The 2020 Equality Index is 73.8%. Okay, 73.8%. Yep. That means that rather than having a whole pie, which is 100%, which would mean full equality with whites in 2020, black folks are missing about 26% of the pie. There you go. But I'm making you pay full price for a hell. whole pie. <laughs> exactly. So this is why, in the grand scheme of things, not to make light of this, this is really why... Allyship is so
1: important. This is what our sister Amber Cabral has been talking about. That's right. That's what she was talking about. And that's the point of the message. So I'm just say right now. It's pen and paper time. So I'm gonna give you just a second. Two, three, four. (laughs) Amber is about to share her six step secret for being a better ally. And she'll provide some advice to black women also looking to find their voice.
2: So again, if you don't have your pen and paper, you might have to do old school, like when you used to have the tape deck. You might have to stop that shit and and pause it
1: for just a second,
2: rewind it, and then listen to it again. That's right. Because this is real, right? It's
1: gonna be worth it, y'all. In our episodes, when we do our podcast, we have a a part of our podcast that we call Secrets, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what the podcast is all about: is providing C-suite secrets for employees on how to be better people in the workplace. And so, I know in your book, you talked about six behaviors that folks can embrace to be better allies and I was wondering if you could give like a cliff notes version because we want people to buy their book yeah <laughs>
2: so <laughs> don't,
1: you don't give you know, them all the tea don't give them all the tea just give them a cliff notes <laughs> version so they want to go buy this book real yeah. fast so absolutely uh, uh, just those six behaviors
3: <laughs> sure I can do that so the first one we kind of touched on a moment ago um expect to be uncomfortable like you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to be open to the possibility that the life that you are living is in a little bit of a bubble because you're real attached to your comfort, all right? But we don't get to include other identities unless we are willing to be a bit uncomfortable. And that can be uncomfortable with ideas, that can be uncomfortable with conversations, that can be uncomfortable with approach, right? So we, we need to be expectant of that. Um, discomfort to kind of show up as a first step. You also want to make room for imperfection. And and when I say make room for imperfection, I'm speaking about making room for your own as well as making room for others' imperfection. Now we tend to think, you know, I got it. I'm going to tell you all the ways you're not doing it right. Right. But when we're thinking about including people, you're talking about identity. Everybody's different. What Amber's going to need when she shows up in the room is going to be a little bit different than what Ricky's going to need. It's going to be a little different than what Keith is going to need, right? So like we need to be thoughtful about how I can make space for the possibility that I may be imperfect in how I'm engaging. And the way you, you know, you really want to do that by building different relationships with folks, folks that are not just like you so that you can start to kind of be attuned to, oh, I might need to shift a little bit here. It's kind of like, you know, if you're going to talk about The example I often provide, you know, internally, not in in front of corporations is like, if you're gonna explain sex to your grandmother, it's gonna sound a lot different than if you're gonna explain sex to your husband. Your language is gonna be different there, right? Your energy around it's gonna be different. The delivery, the content that they get will be the same, but you're gonna be a bit different. And so being able to flex and give room for people to have that imperfection. And you show up imperfectly. We're gonna mispronounce names. We're gonna step on toes. All those things are gonna happen. And so we gotta make space for that imperfection in ourselves and in others as we're growing, okay? The third thing is to make sure that you seek and expect feedback. The key part of that is seek, okay, seek. (laughs) We tend to not go find the feedback. If it comes to us, we might be open to hearing it, right? But like, we are real funny about people giving us feedback. And in reality, the only way you can show up as an ally, the only way that you can show up as an advocate, the only way you can actually do inclusion well is to actually get some feedback. You're not going to know what you're doing wrong. You're not going to know because you're going to be out there doing things with your best intentions. And so the only way you figure that out is by people giving you feedback. And guess what? Everybody's scared because they're trying to stay in a little comfort bubble because they're fragile. And so they're not going to come run up on you and give you the feedback. You got to invite the feedback. You got to go get it. And so seeking and expecting feedback is a big part of it as well. Fourth one, you want to make sure that you're giving the feedback. All right. So I got to give you feedback too. So like, sometimes we think it's easier to give feedback. And, and a lot of times, depending on what it is, it is easier for us to kind of roll up on folks and be like, listen, let me give you some feedback, some things you could have done better. Right. That's, that's kind of our nature a little bit, especially when it's someone we care about. But the other thing that's really important is that a lot of times we don't say anything because we don't want to talk about that uncomfortable thing. Right. Cause it goes back to that. Ooh, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know if I should be the one to say it. Am I going to get myself in trouble? Wait, maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Should I be the one to say, it? you know, all of those things go through our brains. You gotta make sure you're willing to push past that and say, wait a minute, I gotta give some feedback here. This is incredibly important. I can see where there may be harm because I did not speak up and give feedback. And so that's a critically important part. Number five is be an attentive listener. We are bad listeners. Even those of you listening to this podcast, you're a bad listener. (laughs) We are all bad listeners. Mostly because many of you were listening to this podcast, like what's the action? What am I supposed to do? All right, we like to listen for the things to do. (laughs) But when you're trying to be an inclusive person, sometimes you've got to listen to more than just the thing to do. You've got to listen to the story. You've got to listen to the why. You've got to listen to the incentive and the motivation behind it. You've also got to make sure that you're being an attentive listener and letting that person know you're listening with simple responses. Mm-hmm, yes, absolutely, right? Things like that are very useful. Sometimes the way we listen is we say, oh yeah, girl, let me tell you when that happened to me. This is what I did, we, now it's our story. <laughs> that's how we listen. That's not listening. That's not an attentive listener. And so we want to be very cautious about how we bring listening to life. And then the last one is exercise your empathy. Like you know, make sure if you feel a thing, you don't stuff it down. You know, we try to shut things up, particularly in corporations. Oh, let me not, you know, show any feelings. You know, you got to make sure you're, you're listening with empathy and paying attention with empathy and extending your empathy and showing your empathy, because this is hearts and minds and feeling work. You are talking about human beings. You're talking about the way they are experiencing life, the way you are experiencing life with them, the way you are doing that together in your workplaces and your shared spaces and your grocery stores and your elevators, all of that stuff. And so you have, have to be willing to like pay attention to that little energy in you that's saying, ooh, you might want to call and check on your friend that just lost their job. You know, y'all haven't talked in a while. Just do a quick check-in.
1: I got one final question. One sure. final one. So sure. what advice would you give Black women in terms of finding their voice and advocating for themselves?
3: Ooh, that. <laughs> so you, you, you're touching a little bit on what the next book might be about, but and I'm still working that out. Yeah. You know, the thing I think that is the most important is you get to decide who you are. Mm -hmm. You decide who you are first. Make the decision. Are you the person that's not going to raise your voice? And if you're not that person, then don't allow the circumstances around you to make you be that person. And so like when I get out of bed every morning, I make some decisions about my day. This is going to be a good day. I'm going to deliver well. I'm going to win. I'm going to say what needs to be said. I'm going to be brave, right? And so I think one of the things that's really important for Black women is like so many things happen to us in a corporation or even in our personal lives or just in the greater society that would lead you to believe that you don't get a say about who you are. I don't get a say about how I experienced childbirth or like engaging with the doctor. I don't get a say in how I'm gonna you know, experience dating. Like I'm at the mercy of all this data and these statistics and circumstances and I am pushing back against that but also still trying to be seen a specific way. I don't do that. This is who I am. This is who I want to be. And so the person that I am and the person that I wanna be, I am committed to that. And I am so committed to that, that I am willing to risk you thinking something that is not me to stand up for my values, to stand up for my opportunity to be seen as a whole human, to stand up for my right to speak up when something isn't equitable for me. And so I think if more of us do that, then the room that we are asking for Will be a required expectation. It will no longer be a thing that we are trying to buy and convince over. It will be. Well, I know she's gonna show up. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I think we have to make the decision first. Who am I? How do I want that to come across to the world? And live in it, regardless of what the circumstances are.
2: Mm-mm-mm. Girl, when you gonna write this book? When that book? <laughs> you know what I'm I write that book. Man,
1: look, if I had glasses, I'd have took
2: them off. <laughs> I feel like I'm in church. I'm in the, You know when i be re- moving forward like this? Oh, I, need me a fan,
1: I need me a fan.
2: I need me a fan. Well, look, Thank Amber, you. again, we love and appreciate you. Thank you for being on. For our listeners, be sure to go out there and cop that book, okay? Allies and Advocates. Now, look, I know at least 2,000 of y'all liked the LinkedIn (laughs) post that I put on there. So that should (laughs) have meant 2,000 purchases, right? So I'm going to repost it (laughs) I'm going to repost it again and we'll give everybody an opportunity to be proactive and to help our sister out. Let's be part of this this village. The book is the truth. Your work is the truth. And again, how can people check you out, Amber? People want to Follow you
3: and whatnot, how can they check you out? I kind of give a little preface. I'll give you all of what you need and you control your own experience. So let's let's do it that way. I'm very, very, very active on social media. All right. So if you want to see Amber be Amber all the time, that means I'm gonna curse, I'm gonna vent, I'm gonna rant, I'm gonna say all the things. Instagram is your platform. (laughs) If you just want to know what to do and you want tactics and you want it nice, neat, buttoned up, and professional. LinkedIn is where you want to go. If you want to see me crack the occasional joke or barely see me at all, Twitter would probably be the best. (laughs) (laughs) If you just want resources and have a good sense of like what I do and the kind of organizations I support and that, um, you know, what what actually is going on with me, my website is ambercabral.com. And if you are looking to engage with me in a professional way, as it relates to business, you can go to cabralco.com. Yeah, All right. <laughs> and one last it.
2: thing. One last thing. We're going to need you to I know you're still looking for the 25th hour in the day and the eighth day in the week, but that podcast we're going oh, yes. to need. like that podcast. I know it's only 10 minutes of, of like nuggets, 10 to 15 minutes of nuggets to give people. But I like that shit, Amber. I like it.
3: Listen, I try to not make it take too long. Like, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love a lot of podcasts, but I'm also like, if I'm going to commit to this, it needs to be short. So I do have a podcast. It's called You Can Have Whatever You Want because it's true. You can. You can have whatever you want. You got to make some decisions about what that is, though. So that's what the podcast is about.
2: Hey, well, look, Amber, again... We are so appreciative. We got a few things to sort out, you know, over here, and I know you got some things to do too. Um, I think that cup. I think I saw that cup was a little empty, so we're gonna need you to go ahead. We're gonna need you to go ahead and refill that cup because we're gonna do the same thing. But we're just so appreciative that you had a chance to, uh, that we had a chance to be able to have you on, and we appreciate all of the truth and that ism that you were spitting. We love it. We love it. Absolutely.
1: No, it's fantastic to meet you. Anything we can do to help you out going forward, you just call on us.
3: I will do that. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, take care.
3: All right, bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Thank you all for listening today. Hopefully you gained a secret or two that can be applied as your journey continues. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Don't forget to tune in next time for more Hot Fire. Until then, cheers.